Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 520, Gospel or Religion? Does God use sickness to punish people? What's easier for God, healing the sick or forgiving sins? And what was Jesus getting at with that whole wineskin metaphor? We're going to answer these questions and more as we begin the first half of Matthew chapter 9. Hi, everyone. Good to be together again today as we carry on. This is actually part 20 in uh, this season five uh, as we look through the Gospel of Matthew together. I'm, uh, I'm really was came to this week with some real excitement. There's, there's some wonderful things going on all at once here. Uh, as I said to you last week when we did uh, chapter 8, um, Matthew has, has organized chapter 8 and 9 around the, the theme of, of Jesus' healing. I, I said that he structured this gospel, not chronologically, but thematically. Um, so now we're going to see another element on display. In the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he said, uh, you have heard it said, referring to the law, the Old Testament law, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Well, now we're going to see not his words, but his, but his, um, we're going to see his teaching put into action, the best way to put it. Um, and when his teaching is put into practice, it comes into clash with with the old and the new, the law and the gospel of the kingdom. They they come together, and we're going to see that pretty clearly today. You know, in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus called for our mercy, but now we see God's mercy in action. What we're seeing here. In, we're going to look at three episodes. This is such a full chapter, I, I'm going to take two weeks on it. But in the three episodes we look at today, we're going to, among other things, we're going to see the incredible power of inclusion. Uh, Jesus lived, as I've said many times, the most inclusive life that was ever lived. Uh, he was always inviting people. Um, he didn't exclude anybody. He said, of course you're included, even those who, who kind of self-exclude. <clears throat> and, and as I've said before, gospel is always inclusive, always. And uh, the, the flip side is that religion, no matter how nice it looks, is by its very nature always exclusive. Because religion says... If you believe these things, if you believe like us, if you talk like us, uh, maybe even if you look like us, then you can be us. But gospel says, no, no, God has created you wonderfully and uniquely, and you are welcome. Um, in all three of these episodes that we're going to look at today, we're going to see this. Jesus gives a freedom to people that will be opposed by the power of religion. So let's dig into the, the scripture, starting chapter 9, verse 1 to 8. After getting into a boat, he crossed the sea and came to his own town, and just then some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, 
this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go home. As he stood up, uh, and he stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to human beings. In in the other accounts, in the synoptics, uh, we're talking Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In, in Mark and Luke's accounts, we see that this paralytic was lowered through the roof. Uh, here, it, it, it's a detail we don't have. It's just out in the open. You know, <clears throat> Matthew's accounts are often shortened uh, compared to both Mark and Luke. Mark's gift to us is, is to, to give us all the details, to provide all the color. Uh, Matthew's gift to us is, is just the essential details. Um, my wife and I laugh because when we're telling somebody a story, for me, they get the Reader's Digest condensed, just the facts, ma'am. And from my wife, they get all the color. But you know, the fact that these, uh, the, the same episode is told in, in different ways, I think, um, adds to the authenticity of their account. Because if you think about it, no two people relay an incident the very same way. Now, if we look at, at what is going on in Mark and in Luke, uh, we'll see that Matthew has changed the chronology. He's, he's made it a little bit later. Again, as I said a few times, this gospel is structured thematically. And the theme that he's working on is he's pointing us chapter by chapter uh, inexorably closer toward the implications of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So let's look at the details of this. The first thing that, that has stood out to me for a long time, it says that when Jesus saw their faith, that is the friends who carried this paralytic in, and, and so we see, like we did in chapter 8 and talked about, that Matthew was continuing to connect uh, faith and healing. But the thing is, it's the faith of another this time. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it seems like an atmosphere of faith is really important, but it's not always important in healing. Um, we see in in John an episode with a, a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and there's no indication of faith. But it seems that for Matthew, this is very often the case. Um, you know, the faith of another is really powerful. I, I could tell you many stories, but but two jump out to me. We were doing a a journey of compassion in uh, in India, and. Uh, after I preached and we gave an invitation and many people responded, the team went out to begin to pray for the sick and healing broke out. And I was standing back, as I always do. I was just up on the platform, kind of staying out of the way. I do that on purpose because I don't want anybody to 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 have faith in, in me. I want them to understand that that the gospel carries its own authority and and that we're all called to do this. Anyway, I'm standing there, and uh, it was nighttime, but there was a, a light 
and I saw silhouetted these three fellows coming toward me from a little ways off, and the middle one seemed quite reluctant. His body language was he didn't want to come. And it turned out these two friends, this middle guy was blind. And his friends said, he's blind and he needs to be healed. And I said to the man, the blind man, do you want to be healed? And he didn't even answer me. He just kind of scowled. And they said, yes, he does. Yes, he does. And I prayed for him. And immediately he, he got his vision. And I never forgot that because it was it was the power of the faith of another. I remember we were doing a conference in Canada, and uh, I was notified between sessions that there was a woman who'd been carried in on on a bed, and she was in the back room. Her her friend came to me and said, "I know she'll be healed." And I came, and she had very advanced cancer. She was, you know, like skin and bone. And I prayed for it. She was completely healed. She was totally healed. Um, and, you know, when I'm talking about things like like cancer or AIDS, it's not because she said she was. It was a, I got the report a few days later from the doctor. What was it? I, I didn't see any particular faith in this poor, emaciated woman, but her friend was absolutely sure. So what we see here is a great example of the determined faith of his friends. Now, Jesus' response surprised people. Because the first thing he said is, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. One of the early church fathers, St. Jerome, said this, Oh, wonderful humility, he addresses as son this abject and infirm paralytic with disjointed members whom the priest did not stoop to touch. A son indeed, because his sins are forgiven him. You know, it's really interesting. They... As Jerome says, the, the, the religious folks wouldn't even touch him. They ignored him. One of the things about healing that I've seen over the years is how humanizing it is. Someone who's maybe known in the village as, as the blind man or the deaf person. Or I, I had the most remarkable example of this ever. I was walking through a village with someone in Andhra Pradesh, and we walked by, and there was a, a lady. She didn't in my recollection, wasn't very old, probably 30, and she was lying on a straw mat in the dirt, side of the road. Everybody's just walking by like she's not even there, just invisible. It's a little bit like the homeless are often invisible to us, aren't they? Anyway, I was just walking along, and suddenly I just knew that the power of God was there to heal. So I turned, and I, I uh, with my translator, said, may I pray for you, put my hands on her. And do you know, it was incredible. Right in front of our eyes, her... Um, I suspect it had been a stroke sometime earlier because her, her, her limbs were just very, very, very thin. And uh, I prayed, and in front of all of our eyes, whew, she just filled out just like that. I've, I've seen that a few times, but this was just remarkable. And she looked at herself, and she jumped up, and she took off. I thought, wow. And uh, we carried on the other direction. Probably 20 minutes later, I came around the corner of a different building in the village, and there she was, and she must have had an audience of 40 people, and she was telling them all what had just happened. And I had the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, and people came to Christ. But the the invisible lady was now the focal point of everyone's attention. So healing has so many things that are wonderful about it. One of them is it humanizes, and this man was being humanized. Now, it's interesting that 
The first thing Jesus says is, son, your sins are forgiven. I often wonder what the paralytic thought, like what, what's going on? I, I'm, I'm here because I'm paralyzed. Your sins are forgiven. So it causes me to think, I've been thinking a lot about it the last few days, do we see how serious, how incredibly uh, destructive uh, sin is and, and therefore how vital, how essential the need is to have sin dealt with in our lives. Matthew's themes run consistently all through his gospel. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, the prophetic word uh, of Mary, she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew is developing what he set out at the beginning of the gospel. We see Jesus saving someone from their sin. And then I, I couldn't help but think, is Jesus somehow connecting sin and sickness because he began with that? And and I just have to tell you that I'm not sure. Um, I know that the blind man in John 5, his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But Jesus answered and said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. I just want to say this as an aside, because many of us have have heard, I think, wrong teaching or misunderstood. God never uses sickness to punish. Never. Because Jesus never did this. And if you've seen Jesus, he is fully God. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, the it says here the scribes. The, the, some of the religious leaders, they responded with criticism to this. Uh, what they were thinking was, was they were responding with unbelief. They were blind to what was happening right in front of them. And Jesus recognized it, and he said this kind of denial or blindness he called evil. Something else we learn here. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus made that very clear. And Matthew, therefore, is revealing who Jesus really is through this episode. He's bringing us back, and he's bringing us back to the truth that Jesus is not like God. Jesus is God. He is, he is God the Son. He's part of the Trinity, the triune God. He's not, he's not lesser to God. Uh, Jesus said in, in, um, in John 14, 9, he said to Philip, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So, you know, it's awfully easy, and, and I think especially to be truthful in evangelicalism, it's easy for how Jesus, as a, as a lesser God, can creep into our thinking. We need a, tra- a strong and a true Christology. Christology is who the, the, the identity, the nature of Christ is. You, you know, as an aside, one of the reasons why I think it is so important that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, regularly as, as so many church traditions do, I think in the Eucharist, among the many things that happens, is it connects us to the cosmic reality of who Christ really is. He's in all things. He's created all things. 
something related to that in terms of a strong Christology of understanding who Christ is. I think it, it's revealed to us through the Eucharist, but also intimacy. The closer I get to him, uh, the more uh, who he really is is revealed. I think that without contemplation, somehow he becomes smaller. And it, and it just happens gradually. He is the full and perfect revelation of who God is. And Matthew's gospel is telling us again and again and again, look at Jesus. This is who God is. He's not like God. He is God. That's why sometimes I, I spend quite a bit when I'm teaching in places on the incarnation. The word became flesh. So, Jesus understands the religious leaders, the scribes in this case, are, are murmuring and saying, this is blasphemy. And so he turns to them and he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go home. You know, for, for a long time, I think I misunderstood this passage. Um, I think that I thought forgiving sin was easier. And uh, so that Jesus was saying, well, you know, if I can, if I can cause him to stand up, then certainly I can forgive. But I think I was mistaken. I, I, I'm beginning to understand at a deeper level, I think maybe it has to do with just as I'm getting older, that that it's harder for sin to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be erased than it is for a paralytic to walk. Uh, I think this is because we don't have a true understanding of the incredibly destructive power of sin that is at work in us. Paul, Romans 7, told us it, that sin is at work in us. In Romans 8, this is why all creation is groaning. It's a bigger deal than we realize. Jesus defeats the power of sin at the cross. So in this passage, Matthew's giving us a foretaste of what Jesus is going to do at the end of his gospel. One of my real favorite church fathers, St. Hilary, uh, he said that this whole episode points toward the cross and the resurrection. He said this, first, Jesus granted forgiveness of sins, then he displayed the power of the resurrection. The first and most important freedom of the gospel is the freedom of Jesus' forgiveness of sins. And I think freedom is a, is a subtext, a, a theme through today's three various readings. It's interesting, after he, he stands up and he's healed, he says, now take your bed and go to your home. We've talked a lot about the, the, the literal, the moral, the spiritual or water to wine reading. And uh, I'm not going to go over that again today. But, but St. Hilary saw a, a spiritual water to wine reading in Jesus' command for him to take his bed and go home. He said this, We are being given back the way to paradise from which Adam had proceeded. He said it doesn't just mean his house, but, but ultimately we're headed back to paradise. And this man, freely cleansed and forgiven and set free. 
And when the crowds saw it, they were filled with awe and they glorified God who'd given such authority to human beings. It's interesting. If you look at a whole bunch of different translations, uh, sometimes it says awe, sometimes it says wonder. But literally, the actual word is afraid. The crowd was afraid. Why were they afraid? I think they just encountered the, the holy power and authority of Jesus. And their response was fear. And that's pretty consistent as people encounter this holy God. Uh, there's a holy reverence, which frankly, I think we need, we need more of. I really do. Not fear, not cowering, but a, a reverence of who this wonderful God is. Just in my morning reading today, part of my reading, I'm going through, uh, um, Second Chronicles and, and, uh, there's a three different times in three chapters where the glory of God falls and, and the, the priest can't minister and the people are on their face. When Ezekiel encountered the vision of Christ, this living God, with, with like he's on fire, like burnished bronze, he hits the deck. Daniel, the same thing. John, the beloved disciple, the same one who put his head in chapter 13 of John on Jesus' Uh, chest, when he sees who Jesus really is, he hits the deck. The people were filled with awe, but it was a fearful, reverential awe. It's interesting though, isn't it? While the religious leaders are offended by this, the common people are in awe and they glorify God for what Jesus has done. What's Matthew doing? He's Building a rising tension. Something inevitable is coming. And I think that this is a watershed moment right here. Well, let's move on to the call of Matthew, starting at verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. A few background points I want to make. Mark and Luke refer to Matthew as Levi, and, and Matthew, written by Matthew, calls himself Matthew. So what, what gives here? Well, it's most likely that he had a Jewish name, Levi, and a Greek name, Matthew. Now, it's really interesting that, that Matthew identifies himself clearly, but, but the other gospel writers call him Levi, and and I think the church fathers had it right. They said that probably they were somehow trying to disguise or gloss over Matthew's disreputable past as a tax gatherer. Tax gatherers were, were really bad. Um, but Matthew is fully disclosing when he introduces himself in his own account, he says he was actually sitting at the tax collector's booth. St. Jerome said this, out of respect and deference, the other evangelists were unwilling to call him by the common name of Matthew, but said Levi. Matthew calls himself a 
publican, a tax gatherer, a sinner, to show his readers that no one must despair of salvation if he's changed for the better, for he was suddenly changed from a publican to an apostle. Isn't that something? And and John Christostom said this, and we have cause also to admire the self-denial of the evangelist, how he does not disguise his own former life, but adds even his name when the others had concealed him. It's interesting, you see, Matthew, his work as a tax gatherer, working for the Romans, he would have been fluent in both uh, Aramaic, uh, a branch of Hebrew, what the, the common people spoke, he would have been fluent in both Aramaic and Greek. And also, his work depended upon keeping accurate records. So I think this is a skill that that he was going to find very essential for taking notes for his gospel that would be written uh, some decades later. We may miss how daring it was for Jesus to call a hated, despised, outcast tax gatherer. Uh, it confronted the, the conventional ideas of, of what it was to be respectable. He says, follow me. Now, Jesus waited until the right time. He didn't say, follow me to Matthew at the same time that he said it to the the two sets of brothers. He waited for the right time because he knew the right time for Matthew's heart to respond. You know, sometimes we can get frustrated or we can look back with some sense of remorse or loss. Why didn't I come to Jesus sooner? We have to trust Christ's timing in our lives. Now, we're confronted also that there's a cost to following. Matthew would have been a wealthy man. Uh, he probably had a large home. And uh, he, he was used to being rich. And in that moment, he gave up the lifestyle of being rich. The point is this. To truly follow always costs something. That's why following is part of the process of losing our lives in order to find them. Remember that, that multiple repeated saying of Jesus. In the process of following, we are always dying to our ego self. I promise you, because Jesus is headed to the cross. Contrary to what is so easy to hear in the 21st century, Jesus is not calling for an adjustment to make you a better person. He is calling for a radical shift to an entirely new life. Now, I see this all the time with my travels, where the church preaches a gospel of radically following Jesus. It's going to cost you everything. This isn't an adjustment. This is a whole new life. Wherever that is preached, the church grows and the kingdom forcefully advances. Those are the people who, who become salt and light, not the ones who are responding to a, you can be a better person or this is a good adjustment for you. Verse 10, and as Jesus sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. Luke fills in more details. 
Because again, Matthew continues to only give us what's essential. So in Luke's account, Luke 5.19, then Levi, notice it's Levi, uh, gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. This is what Matthew was about to leave behind. And remember, Jesus said to Peter, nobody gives up or leaves behind family, houses, friends, without receiving more in this life. I just want to tell you my own personal testimony is that that is absolutely true. Uh, I feel like I have family around the world. This week I've been talking to to family, to spiritual sons and daughters and brothers uh, in three nations in the last two days and their family. Um, <clears throat> secondly, in, in his new kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens, there's room for everyone at his banqueting table. It says, and his disciples. So he was there and his disciples. Jesus is modeling a whole new kind of lifestyle. This is the kind of lifestyle, frankly, that I see with house churches, uh, whether they're in Uganda or whether they're in India, right now, whether they're in Australia. It's a new lifestyle. It's a, it's a collegial. It's a coming together. This is a picture we get right here in Matthew's house of gospel life. And this is what the disciples who were brought in that day, this is exactly what they passed on to the early church. Another church father, Peter Chrysologus, said this, Jesus sitting at the table has more significance for Matthew than just dining. Jesus will be feasting not on food, but on the return of sinners. He will call them back through feasting, collegiality, and human affection, enjoying himself with their pleasant conversation while reclining at table. It is not a nice, quiet meeting, everybody sitting in straight rows listening to Jesus. It's life. I had a, I had a spiritual son yesterday said, <clears throat> as soon as you can fly, as soon as COVID will allow you, will you come and do life with us? And he was talking about his house church. Now, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is the first direct interaction with Pharisees in Matthew's gospel. In <clears throat> For him to be in that house with his disciples, it meant he was in danger of being ceremonially unclean. They were fully aware of that. Jesus and the disciples, they went anyway. I think Matthew is connecting in these two healing chapters, healing ministry with the healing of sinners. The sick needed doctor and Jesus healed them. Likewise, the sinful need mercy, forgiveness, restoration, and Jesus heals them. The religious leaders were expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and would support the righteous. That is exactly the, the kind of messianic, Davidic Messiah that they were expecting. And now here, they see the very opposite, and they were offended. He accepted and transformed the sinner, and he dismissed the righteous. Later on, multiple times, he'll call them hypocrites. 
Matthew, <clears throat> excuse me, is making it very clear that Jesus' mission was characterized by grace, by pursuit of the lost and of sinners. Folks, if we're really honest, it's so easy for us to take this attitude of the religious folks in our hidden, in our internal attitudes and thoughts. You know, our flesh is always looking for someone who's lower than us, maybe less righteous than us. Um, by the way, as an aside, I, I finished reading a terrific book called Cast, C-A-S-T-E. I would recommend it. Uh, because it talks about how this is so societal, always looking for a lower class of people. Jesus' standards were an offense to the religious people, to what they thought was right. Later on in chapter 21, Jesus will say this, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. So they're outside Matthew's house, they're grumbling, they're complaining. Jesus hears of it, and he goes out and he says this to them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I think he was saying it with great irony, maybe even a bit of a smile. Those who think they're righteous are not looking for the great physician. Remember in, in Luke chapter 7 when the, the immoral woman, the prostitute, comes into Simon the Pharisee's house and, and there's this incredible transaction that takes place. She receives healing and incredible new life. Simon receives nothing because he thought he needed nothing. In, uh, in uh, Revelation 3, 17, Jesus says this to the church of Laodicea, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Matthew, throughout these chapters, he keeps pushing us back to the center of his gospel, which is the Beatitudes. The blessings are there for those who know their need. And then he goes on famously in verse 13. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Again, St. Hilary wrote, Salvation for all people is preserved through the gift of mercy. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6, and the whole verse is very interesting. It says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Matthew is unveiling knowledge of God, who God really is, as he unveils Christ. So Jesus is saying that this verse, Hosea 6.6, 6, is, is the, the social point of the entire Old Testament. I think, I think it's the equivalent of the, of the golden rule in the New Testament. You know, there's many, many Old Testament sayings that challenge that human instinct to rely on religious ritual. And, and once I started, I, I wanted to put down 20 of them, but I'll give you three. Isaiah 1, uh, verse 11 and 16 and 17. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. I have loved that for years. Uh, 
Jeremiah 7, verse 4 and then 9 to 11. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we're safe. And then I, Amos 5, 22 to 24, God says this, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. When Jesus says, go and learn this, I want mercy and not sacrifice. He's getting to the very heart, the heart of the Old Testament, and frankly, the heart of Scripture. And it's like, it's equal to him saying, I want neighborliness and not your individualism, not your private lives. We don't need more private religion. It's about me and God and me getting to heaven. He says, I want neighborliness. And this is mercy. You know, this, this episode is very powerful. Because if we can understand it and embrace it, it frees us from ever feeling unsure about being with the wrong kind of people. Jesus ran into the darkness. You know, a few years ago, I took some um, owners of of significant companies, American companies, uh, into uh, East Africa, and we had a powerful time together, and I, I took them into garbage dumps, and I took them into all kinds of places. But I was thinking today about an episode <clears throat> that I hadn't thought about for a while. We took them into this drug den. It was almost pitch black. When I went in, I didn't couldn't see anybody, and as my eyes adjusted, there was about 100 young men there, probably uh, 14 to 19 or 20. And... Uh, and they were all sniffing glue. They were all sniffing glue. And um, and it just felt so dark. And I watched these uh, executives, friends of mine, I watched them just kind of tighten up. Understandably, who they'd never been in a place like that. This is the wrong place to be in the wrong part of town. But through the time we had with them and we we shared about the love of Jesus and many gave their lives to Christ. And my friend Mike Brown said, God's presence is here. And all these young men are nodding in agreement. And he says, where God's presence is, there's church. And when you have church, you always have an offering. And I'm thinking, Mike, what are you talking about? And he pulled out green garbage bags and he said, let's make an offering to Jesus right now. Give him your glue bottles, give him your drugs. And they came up one after another. Remember, there was maybe a hundred of them there. And it was powerful. It was an amazing time. We went out, he was feeding them. We went out on the bus and and a man we didn't know came onto the bus and he's just sitting there. And um, uh, Mike came on a few minutes later and he introduced this man. He said, this man, uh, a Muslim man, has been the, the drug dealer and he has something he wants to say because he's the one who supplied all the drugs and he started to talk and he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and it was just contrition i'm so sorry i'm so sorry god forgive me 
please you people forgive me. It was amazing. In fact, the next day he showed up at church at eight o'clock in the morning with everything he had, all his drugs, all his paraphernalia, and he just gave it to the Lord. It's a, it's a powerful story, but, but it would never have happened if we hadn't run into the darkness. Okay, let's go to the last episode. Question about fasting. Starting at verse 14, then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? It's interesting to note that in Mark and Luke, it's the religious people who come uh, to Jesus with that question, but here it's John disciples, John's disciples. Now, most scholars uh, think that these are the disciples of John who never transitioned um, they, they were following John, but they never acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, his supremacy. And history tells us by the end of the first century, uh, they had developed their own sect. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Again, Matthew's putting this together so beautifully. Jesus is using the picture of a wedding feast. In the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the wedding feast was always connected to the messianic banquet. There are prophetic words about this great feast. I'll give you just one. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. You know, wedding festivities, um, uh, they went on for days and days. They were a symbol of great joy. They're, they're an image of life in the kingdom of God. Uh, in this environment of great joy and great celebration, fasting would be totally inappropriate. Think how insulting that would be to, to the, the groom and the bride and their parents. No, no, I'm fasting. It's inappropriate. You know, it's interesting. At a Jewish wedding, they went on for a week. And for a week, it was an open house. Every single person who wanted to come was welcomed. Jesus is giving us a picture of the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom he's ushering in where everyone is welcome. And again, as I said earlier, here's another example. Jesus' answer was Christological. It pointed to his, his true identity, his true cosmic purpose. He is the Messiah. He's the Messianic bridegroom. And the Messianic age has begun. That's why he gave that answer. And then he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This is the first hint in Matthew. It will grow, especially after chapter 16. But the first hint that Jesus is going to be taken away. By the way, the, the, the verb there in the Greek suggests a violent and unwelcome removal. So, we're on the home stretch. Verse 16 and 17. And no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. For the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. 
but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. We often hear of this image in the church of new wine. Well, the new reality that Jesus has just introduced, the messianic age, he's saying, you, you can't blend it. You can't patch it onto or pour it into the old Judaism. They are completely incompatible. This would have been just shocking to his listeners. Um, new forms are going to have to accompany the kingdom of the heavens. Michael Green said this, Old regulations about ceremonial defilement cannot stand before the joy of forgiveness of fellowship, of excitement, and new direction, which the coming of the kingdom inaugurates. So this newness that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, it can't be contained by, by traditional Jewish piety. These pictures are radical implications for the entire structure of the Jewish religion. I believe, frankly, that, that God's always at work and he's always renewing and reforming us, you and I as individuals, but his church, his people. But you know what happens? Our flesh, almost all the time, gets uncomfortable with the unknown. We resist the new and the untested. I think we're in a time where there's new forms in the church. With, with the pandemic, I've watched this so clearly as my pastor friends from countries around the world, some have, have just hunkered down. And so we're waiting for things to get back to normal. I think that ship has sailed, by the way. But others said, oh, God's pushing us into new forms new wineskins, and their church, which they always thought of as being, you know, X miles around their building, they realized their church is now multinational. It's all over, and people are connecting and getting together. We have a, we have a, a global house church where we, it used to be in my living room, and then it couldn't be, and I felt lost. And then I said, well, let's do it uh, online and let people come, and now it's beautiful. It's from South America, Australia, Canada, U.S. It's beautiful. New forms. I think God is always bringing new forms. So, at the same time, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like someone who brings out treasures both old and new. I feel like the Holy Spirit is shining on uh, on, on new models, house churches, etc., but also liturgical models. That, that there's contemporary worship, but there's traditional worship. That we're moving forward, yet we're grounded in what is the best from the past. So, to wrap this up, Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Paul recognized our great tendency toward rules, regulations, wanting to know the right way to do things. And he repeatedly reminded the church that the gospel is born of the Holy Spirit. And, and the gospel, it was higher than the law. It reflected the life of the kingdom. So as we read these three episodes today, they're like a litmus test. They reveal our instinctual responses. They reveal our, our unknown biases. They, they reveal that how do we respond to the freedom of forgiven sin for everyone? 
How do we respond to the, the joyful freedom of being included? Everyone, both here and now, like when they were in Matthew's house, and the great wedding celebration. These are at the heart of the gospel that Matthew spreads out before us like a feast in these verses. So I hope today has been helpful. There, there's a richness there that I find remarkable. If you'll just wait for a moment, we're going to get set up, and uh, Tim and I are going to do some question and answer. If you have any questions, you can type those in. We would be delighted to answer or to just talk to any, about any comments you've got. So God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. All right. Uh, I'm being told we're back. I got distracted with these buttons. They turn on the they turn the lights up so that you can see us better cuz if we turn them all the way up while you're speaking, then you get a suntan while you're preaching. That's that's great. <laughs> um I'm really glad that you split that in two. We were having a chat earlier today because you were contemplating doing all of chapter 9 yep. in one session and uh and we decided it's just too much, too much good stuff. So um, I'm really glad because we got to go a little deeper with, with that stuff. It gave me time to add a few examples and, yeah. and stories from the field. I think that's so helpful too for us to hear these practical examples of, of what, you know, what that looks like, what it, what it looks like in real life, the, some of the, the positive and the negative implications of some of this stuff. Um, I have some questions. I think I'll ask them in reverse order just uh, so that we remember the stuff you most recently said and work backwards. But just before I get into questions, uh, I just wanted to remind our listeners, our viewers, that uh, we have our friend uh, Brad Jerzak joining us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Mountain Time. I think I've got that right. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to see that on Facebook Live. Uh, if you're a podcast subscriber, you can download that later as well, uh, the audio of that. Um, you were on the phone with Brad just earlier today, I think. I yeah. was. Uh, you want to give us just a sneak peek as to sure. what he'll be talking about? Um, I think that uh, we called it uh, inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy. What mm -hmm. the heck? Exactly. And that's the title he gave us. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, as are the staff here, uh, are reading Brad's newest book, mm -hmm. A More Christ-Like Word. Yeah. And with everything... I've got to convince you folks that are listening now, uh, get that book. It is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. It's it's deep, but not difficult. Mm -hmm. It's not technical. Yeah. And um, we need to read the scriptures a lot better than we do, and frankly, <laughs> a lot more faithful to how they were read yeah. for... Um, well, in one sense, until the last hundred years, because inerrancy really only caught on even less than that, about 75 years. Mm -hmm. So I would really encourage people, come next Tuesday at 11. Uh, you're going to leave knowing things about your Bible that you didn't know when you came. Indeed. And probably unknowing some things, too. You know, Yeah. Unlearning some things. Um, 
And actually, I've got a question for you in a few minutes that you very well could just punt to Brad for next week. So I might re-ask him as well. Um, But anyway, uh, do be sure to join us for that. uh, And you can get a reminder on your phone if you subscribe to all our stuff and everything as well. Uh, Okay, questions. Uh, actually, I don't, I don't have this question written down because it, it occurred to me just as, as you were wrapping up, but as you're talking about the new wineskin, new wine versus the old wineskin, new wine, how those are incompatible. And, mm-hmm. and Jesus is saying like, we can't do things the way we used to do them. Um, there, there has been a trend I've heard about recently where Christians have enjoyed worshiping uh, with some of the um, Old Testament feasts and festivals and things like that. They're enjoying kind of exploring Christ through the lens of ancient Judaism. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Is that are, are we moving backwards? Are we getting into old wineskins with that? Or Well, uh, not everyone's going to agree with me. Okay. <laughs> um, but I tend to think that is the case. Okay. And, you know, it's interesting because historically, uh, certainly in the, in the charismatic mm-hmm. tradition, the, the, the longer we go between real fresh moves of the spirit, mm-hmm. the more the church starts kind of focusing on peripheral things, um, making them more central than I think they really are. When such the, as? Such as? Uh, focusing on the Jewish traditions, and mm-hmm. and I know of churches that even have Jews who come in to teach them the festivals and teach them so forth. Now, obviously, I study the scriptures, and so I I got to understand what the Old Testament. Yeah, you want to understand Absolutely. some of the context of these things. Yes, yeah. but I, but that's different than what you're talking about. Okay, so that's where I come down on that. Yeah, uh, let me let me press you. A little further on something. Uh, define moves of the spirit. You said the the longer we go between <sighs> corporately, mm-hmm. not individually. Yeah. I, I have moves of the spirit happen. Seasons in my life, we all do. Probably sure. suddenly the scriptures very fresh. We're hearing the Lord, mm-hmm. but corporately they tend to be marked by. Uh, a greater sense of awe, mm-hmm. which I talked about today, they tend to be marked by an ingathering of the scattered, sometimes even brand new, you know, not yet believers come in. Yeah. But there's a, there's a gathering. It's like a fire. John Wesley said, uh, people will come for miles around to watch a man burn. Yeah. And, and he's talking about that move of the yeah. Spirit. So these are... are times that have been often referred to as revival. Yeah, or what Peter called times of refreshing, mm-hmm. right, in Acts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we could go on to a whole long discussion about what's revival, what's Indeed. renewal, what's yeah. restoration. <laughs> but but that's what I would say I mean by a movement okay. of spirit. Cool. Uh, all right, related perhaps slightly, uh, you quoted some Old Testament scriptures, mm-hmm. and this is a question that we we may uh, give to Brad as well, but I'd like your take on it. Uh, you quoted some Old Testament scriptures where God is basically saying, like, I don't want your sacrifices. I've had enough of the blood of bulls and goats and, yep. and yep. turtle doves. <laughs> uh, and 
uh, and your grain offerings and all those things. So that begs the question, didn't he ask for those things in the first place? Like, why did he ask for them and then say, I don't need this garbage? That's a really <laughs> dirty question. <laughs> well, you're reading the book. Because it opens up stuff. I was asked that. I remember 2011, I was asked a question like that. And I said, if I answer that question, we're opening up a can of worms that will go on for a long mm. time. And they said, answer it anyway. <laughs> and I was right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, let's let's give that over to Brad. All right. Not that I'm not happy to answer it, but I think there's some stuff that would be more directly pertinent to today. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think he'll be able to answer that in in a greater context based on what he's teaching next yes. week. So the, the, he'll be he'll have the time. And I'll be happy it. to chime in on yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So there you go. That's what we call in the business a teaser. Um, you mentioned a book called Cast. Yeah. You talked about our human tendency and societal tendency is to um, almost be on the lookout for those who are lower than us. I, I think the the implication being so it makes us feel more yes. important, feel better. Yes. Uh, what are some of the signs that we're actually harboring an attitude like that, and how do we do away with that attitude? Okay. How do we change? Our I'm heart? gonna I'm gonna move this. I was using it in. Again, the the religious leaders context, mm -hmm. not the not the racial social context. Yes. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, well, at least I know the Bible better than he does. Ah. Uh, or, well, that guy. I never see him praying. Mm -hmm. Or she seems to she seems to have a bigger problem with gossip than I do. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anytime you start doing a comparison thing, you're sliding, you're, and you yeah. and you're comparing downward, yeah. right? So that <laughs> yeah. you you don't See. feel so bad about your prayer life mm -hmm. and your scripture, yeah. etc. Well, you know, it, it's interesting because you and I were sitting in this space just last night, yep. uh, doing a webinar on healing the sick, and a question that I asked you was, you know, um, do you encounter people who have difficulty keeping their prayers short and simple, and instead sliding into this Christianese? And, yep. and I think that that could be a symptom of this very thing, where, you know, when you're praying out loud, uh, suddenly you feel the need to sound very King James, or, yes. you know, you use as many scripture references as you possibly can, yes. and it's almost like you're trying to prove to yourself and those who are listening, I, I, I know my stuff. Yeah, I got the goods. Others. Yeah, <laughs> good. Um, all right, you you had a really interesting point earlier about how Matthew refers to himself as Matthew, and the other two guys that write about him refer to him as Levi yep. very often, and how uh, he's just being real about who he who he was, where he came from. Yep, and it got me thinking about testimonies. I think we've all heard testimonies that are that really dwell on the who I was and you wouldn't believe the scoundrel I was. <laughs> I, I I had a, a great pastor my first few years. He referred to those as I was a teenage werewolf testimony. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Um now I'm a guy with a testimony that very much has a before and after. I yep. I man did I ever mess things up. And a very dear friend of mine uh, has said to me in the past, like, hey, that's not you anymore. You don't need to dwell on that. But at the same time, uh, you know, A-B comparisons before and after comparisons are a great way to glorify what God has done, to, to demonstrate the power of God, the, the power of the gospel in your life. Mm -hmm. Where's the balance between dwelling on the before 
and operating out of the, the who you are in Christ, who Christ Great calls question. you to be. Now we're back to, like we talked about last night, is being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And what what might encourage one person, another, it mm-hmm. would discourage. That's really good. And, yeah. um, and by the way, it's sort of consistent with the the writers of the Gospels, they watched out for one another. Hmm. You know, uh, Peter was the hardest on himself. Uh, In Peter's account, which is Mark's Gospel, um, he didn't get out of the boat. He didn't have more courage than the others Hmm. in his own account. So it's it's consistent. Yeah. Wow. Uh, All right. Last question, and then then we'll wrap it up. But... uh, at the very beginning, you talked about how they were in awe of Jesus, and you said the the word actually really was afraid. Yeah, and so I just want to take a moment and talk about the fear of God because it's it's very much a a paradox, right? We are mm-hmm. Jesus Himself just a few chapters ago told us when we pray we can call Him Father in Heaven or Daddy in Heaven, Abba. Uh, we're told that Jesus is a friend of sinners; He He can be our friend, and yet. There is also this call to reverence and and the fear of God. Can you help us square that circle? Well, that's a really... You're asking big questions today. Indeed. Because we're walking... We're walking a balance here. I am not interested, at least for me, in kind of a holiness gospel because your list of what holiness entails is different than mine. Mm. I go to countries where they say that uh, to dance is wicked. I go to other countries where, what's the matter? Aren't you rejoicing in the Lord? Why aren't you dancing? (laughs) Yeah. Right? Um, Whatever our lists are. So I'm not interested in that. But there is a sense in which There are times I'm just aware, oh, God, you're amazing. Hmm. And I don't mean you're amazing, hallelujah, but oh, the weight, the, the weight, weightiness of that kabod, the weight of glory, yeah. kabod. Yeah. And uh, in fact, the weight of glory is a wonderful essay by C.S. Lewis that I would include, I would encourage everyone to read, mm-hmm. The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis. Um, and... So that's the answer. It's it's walking and and again, sometimes in some of our traditions, in our desire to be free, we've moved into something called antinomianism, which is a big word meaning anything that restricts us is law and we're against the law. And fear could restrict us, right? Well it can. When Jesus showed up, he said, Don't be afraid. Sure. But he was saying it to people that were afraid, right? <laughs> yeah. He wasn't. He, they weren't high fiving and partying. Yeah. Uh, we we need a reverent awe. What? The end of Mark chapter four. He speaks to the wind and the waves. We talked about that last week, actually, in in Matthew eight. And they go, and I always picture Jesus going back to sleep, you know, and they go, what? What manner of man is this? Mm-hmm. Who is this? Yeah. And um, that's for me the the reverent fear. Yeah. Good. Well, I and, and I yeah. hope yeah. that these three episodes 
as I said at the end, can be a litmus test for every one of us. Mm -hmm. In the privacy and and, uh, solitude of our relationship with the Lord, that all three of those can help us to see where we are. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's really where I wanted to go today. Yeah. Good. Well, that was the first half of Matthew chapter 9, and I'm willing to bet that next week you're going to teach the second half of Matthew chapter 9. It was in my mind. (laughs) Uh, You can join us, uh, Facebook Live, every, what day is it? Thursday at 3 p.m. That's Mountain Time, of course. Uh, And if you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, we've got a lot of people who listen, uh, probably on their commute, things like that. If you head to impactnations.com slash podcast, there's a whole bunch of buttons of subscribe there. Uh, You can click subscribe. That'll be delivered directly to your portable telephone device uh and uh you know do us a favor head to whichever podcast app you use give us a five-star review tell people why you're enjoying listening to the podcast because that's going to help others to discover this and we've had a lot of people join the impact nations family in the last couple years who discovered us just kind of serendipitously through uh their podcast searching app or whatever and uh and they've really enjoyed it and are now joining us and rescuing lives around the world too so and put an alert on your phone calendar yeah. for next Tuesday with Brad at 11 o'clock yeah, because uh, not only will you find it interesting, I think it's really important yep. that we we learn to really understand the scripture. Really key. Absolutely. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us this week, and we look forward to being with you next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye.